Amen. Our reading comes from John chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to the end of chapter 3 in the Gospel of John, we are looking at verses 31 through 36, and sometimes it's hard to figure out, and we'll see this in more places in the Gospel of John, where the narrative stops and where John's commentary on the narrative begins. And most uh, scholars think that this verse, 31 through 36, is John, the Apostle John's summary of chapter 3. So it has been said that the Gospel of John, particularly chapter 3, is one of the most important verses of the Bible. And you can see, you can see why. Because we have not an apostle but the very Son of God who came down from heaven explaining to us and to the world how we are to be saved. There's no greater authority than that. And he puts it to us in very simple terms, in ways that we can understand it. So as you remember, weeks ago when we started chapter 3, we, we began with Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. And by worldly standards, Nicodemus was a very righteous man. I mean, if you would look at him on the outside, you would say, there goes a very righteous man. And yet, when he came to Jesus, Jesus did not affirm his righteousness as if it was, were good enough to get him into heaven. But Jesus said to him immediately, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And that should tell everybody who thinks that they can get to heaven on their own righteousness that you can't. If Nicodemus couldn't do it and any of the Pharisees couldn't do it, nobody could do it. And so we find that we are born again, not from our own flesh, not from our own works, We are born again, not because of human decisions or human will. We are born again from the work of the Spirit that Jesus said blows wherever he wills. Now Jesus further explained to Nicodemus that salvation comes to a person by faith, by merely looking to the Son of God on the cross, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and Israel was healed from the poisonous snake bites. Jesus said, just like that, the Son of God will be lifted up. And by looking to the Son of God and looking upon him, we are saved. And that salvation is a gift of God that comes through faith. Then Jesus tells Nicodemus why salvation has come to the world. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But in spite of the fact that God sent his son, Jesus tells us that men love the darkness rather than the light. And for this reason, people choose to be condemned. They condemn themselves by not believing on the son of God. They choose hell. They choose darkness because they refuse to trust in Christ who is the light of the world. And then we saw last week when the focus went back on John the Baptist that there was no one greater than John the Baptist. It's easier for us 2,000 years later to say of course Jesus was greater but 
In that time period, John was known throughout Israel. And uh, when Jesus comes along, um, you know, John looks like he is uh, the Messiah or something, but John refuses um, that following and says, I am not the Christ. And he even affirms that Jesus is greater. We saw last week that John was not envious of Jesus. That's a very rare trait, isn't it? Not envious that Jesus was gaining a greater following. In fact, John affirmed that it gave him great joy for him to become less and less and Jesus to become greater and greater. Now in verses 31 through 36, again, the apostle is giving us a summary or a recap of chapter 3. And in 31 through 36, we can read this in, as John's contrast of the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. In a way, John here is showing us why Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. But this is not just about John the Baptist too, it's about anyone uh, in comparison to Christ. So John here gives us three reasons that Christ is not only greater than John the Baptist, but greater than any religious leader or philosopher that ever lived or ever will live. So the first thing I want us to see in verse 31 is Christ is preeminent because of his origin, because of his origin. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So why is it that the one who comes from above is above all? It's because the one who comes from above comes from God. He is not earthly. So in this sense, John the Baptist did not originate in heaven. He came from earth. He originated from this earth. And so he belongs to the earth and he speaks in earthly ways. It doesn't mean he didn't speak for God, but of course John the Baptist wasn't perfect. He needed a savior for his sins as well. So in other words, someone from heaven speaks from the vantage point of heaven. He speaks of heavenly things, but someone who is from the earth speaks from the vantage point of earth. And of course we know the vantage point of heaven is the greater vantage point. Uh, if you want to know the correct worldview, there's a lot of worldviews out there. The correct worldview, the one that is true and right, is God's worldview. And that's what we have in Scripture, that point of view, the point of view from heaven. Now, this is important because it answers a common question about Jesus. What makes Jesus so different from any other religious leader, from Buddha or Muhammad or someone else? What makes Jesus different? And the answer is that Jesus is the only one that has come from heaven. He who comes from above is above all earthly teachers, and all other teachers come from earth, and so they speak from in an earthly way. So Jesus is superior to all teachers. And this is why the message of Jesus is so different from the message of other religions. If, have you, I'm sure you've heard someone say that all religions are the same. This is a person that really hasn't studied particularly Christianity and the words of Jesus. Because you would not have that confusion if you understood what Jesus taught in comparison to what other religions teach all other religions tell people what they must do to deserve heaven or to reach nirvana, you know, good karma, bad karma, that kind of thing, and, or whatever higher religious goals they are trying to achieve, which means that all, all other religions in this world teach a salvation, whatever that means to them, by works, by good deeds, by trying to be good enough. Even in Hinduism or Buddhism, you try to be good in this life so that you can be reincarnated to a higher form of life. And if you're bad in this life, you're reincarnated as a cow or a dog or 
you know, a worm or something like that. So it's a salvation by works. You try to be better and better so that you can reach that higher plane. Now, others think that there are things that you must do to appease the gods. That's what all the religious people, the Canaanites and people around Israel were trying to do. They would sacrifice, they would do all kinds of things to try to, uh, to appease God, the, the gods. But Jesus comes down from heaven and tells us in no uncertain terms that we can never be good enough. We, we can never work our way to heaven. Even if we are perfect from this day forward, all the sins that we've already committed in our life is enough to fall under the wrath of God and be separated from God forever. So we can never be good enough. We can never do enough good works to deserve heaven. And we can never on our own appease God's wrath and anger toward sin. Now it's good that God is a wrathful God because he's holy. God must punish sin. And he would be unjust and unholy if he didn't punish sin. And so we cannot appease God's wrath on our own. So Jesus tells us that he is the only way of salvation. Now the world doesn't mind if Jesus says, I'm a way. But they really don't like it when we affirm what Jesus said himself. And that is, he is the way, the only way of salvation. So how is it that Jesus saves us? What did he come to tell us and to teach us? Well, as we read the Gospels, and we're going to see this in John and, and other places, we are saved not because Jesus just wakes up one day and says, oh, I think I will, I'll just forgive you, and not do anything about that. We are saved by the obedience of Christ. We are saved by Christ's works, by his merit. And we need to also distinguish in Christ's obedience the difference between active and passive obedience. We're saved by both of those, Christ's active obedience his passive obedience. Christ's active obedience is that he kept the law perfectly. He was without sin. He kept the law and did not transgress um, God's law. And in his passive obedience, he willfully offered up his body to be crucified by Roman soldiers, to be mocked and beaten and he willfully offered up his body as an atonement for our sins. And so we are saved by Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. And when we trust in Christ, our sins are imputed to Christ. That's a very important theological word. And you know, we don't shy away from teaching difficult words, right? Imputation. We need to understand that and have that in our vocabulary. Our sins are imputed to Christ. The idea here is that our sins, think of it as a negative bank account. I don't think you can count that high how negative our bank account would be. That our sins, our account, was, was put into Christ's account was placed upon Christ. So when Jesus hung on the cross, that wrath that was, should have been our wrath for our sins, that wrath the Father poured out on his Son as if he had committed those sins for us. So our sins are imputed to Christ. But here's the, here's the good news. Christ's active and passive obedience is imputed to us. Only righteous people go to heaven. We all know that. And we have no righteousness. That's the problem. But what God has done through Christ is he has taken our sins away and given us the righteousness of Christ as if we kept the law perfectly and has given, uh, and, and it, when Christ died, it's as if we died in Christ 
And so we are now made alive. And when the Father sees us, those who trust in Christ, even though we still struggle with sin and we're imperfect, the Father sees us and he sees the perfection of his Son in us. That's why we have his favor. That's how we're saved. Now that doctrine does not come from earth. That's a heavenly doctrine. That's a doctrine that came from heaven to this earth. No man sitting down to make up a religion makes this stuff up. He couldn't. And so this is the doctrine that, call, that comes from heaven. Martin Luther called the doctrine of imputation, our sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness, active and passive obedience imputed to us. Martin Luther called that the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. And that is the heart of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. That's why it's good news, because our sins are taken away and we are made righteous in Christ. And so, unlike other religious teachers, Jesus tells us that salvation is a gift of God. It is not gained by human works. And then Paul reminds us that that eliminates all human boasting. We can't walk around with our chest stuck, you know, stuck out saying, look how saved I am, look how good I am. We know that we don't deserve it, nor will we ever deserve it. So salvation by grace through faith eliminates all human boasting, and God alone gets the glory for our salvation. So salvation, again, by works is an earthly doctrine. It's why it's common to all the religions in the world. But salvation by God's grace through faith is a heavenly doctrine. And it's taught to us from the one who originated from heaven and came down to us. Second thing I want us to see in verses 32 through 34 is Christ is preeminent because of his testimony. In verse 32, it says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So because Jesus was sent from God's presence, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Now, Jesus tells us this on other occasions. Oh, you're taking my granddaughter. No. That's okay. So Jesus tells us on several occasions in John 5, 19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So, in verse 48 through 50 of John chapter 12, Jesus says, The one who rejects me does not receive my words, uh, and, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Jesus is saying, I came down, I'm not speaking on my own authority and my own words. I'm speaking what the Father told me to say, and I'm doing what the Father told me to do. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus comes down from heaven and he is speaking for the Father. He's doing what he sees the Father doing. He's saying what he hears the Father say. So the words of Jesus, the words that Jesus spoke, are the very words of God. Now you might say, well, I wish I were alive back then so I can hear Jesus speak so that I can hear for myself the very words of God. But I want you to look in verse 32 again. Notice that it doesn't say he bore witness as past tense 2,000 years ago. What does it say? 
He bears witness. That is present tense, meaning that he is still bearing witness to this day. Jesus is still speaking to us today. James Montgomery Boyce writes, where do we hear his testimony? The answer is in the Bible. Is the Bible something that is dead, irrelevant, or dated then? Not for John, and not for any who have come to know Christ and to have experienced the living power of the Bible to speak on his behalf. The Bible is living. Christ is living. Moreover, it is through the Bible that he continues to speak and bear his witness to heavenly things in our days. So Jesus speaks to us when we read the Bible. When you read the Word of God, God is speaking to you and to me. And He speaks to us even now through His preached Word. Jesus is speaking to His people, to His church, even now as the Word of God is preached. One of the major motivations for coming to church, this should be understood by every Christian, one of the major motivations to come to church is to hear a word from the Lord. To hear God speak, that is a vital part of our worship. We come to worship Him, and a vital part of that worship is to hear the Word of the Lord come to us through a human voice, like a preacher who is preaching the Word of God. And I think the reason why many people don't attend church regularly is because they really don't believe that God is speaking through the preached Word. They don't believe it. So Jesus is still bearing witness today. He is still bearing witness to what he has seen and heard from heaven, what he has seen and heard from his Father, and it's found in the pages of the Bible. But John says something very interesting here. He says, yet no one receives his testimony. Now I think that we can take this in two ways. The first way is, if mankind is left to themselves to make their own choice about Christ, Jesus already answered that for us in chapter 3, right? If he just leaves it up to man, they will always choose the darkness. They will always choose sin. Men love the darkness rather than the light. Mankind loves to sin. And they don't want to come to Christ, who is the light of the world, to have their sin exposed. So in a very real sense, no one in their, under their own power, no one will receive the testimony of Christ unless God does a special work of, of salvation in their heart, unless God makes them alive, regenerates them. So in a way, if Christ came and God did not do the work of salvation to cause someone to be born again, no one re would receive Christ's testimony. But another way to take this is that John could be using hyperbole here. John Calvin says, when he, when he says that no man receiveth his testimony, he means that there are very few and almost no believers when compared with the vast crowd of unbelievers. Basically, he's saying no one believes his testimony. I mean, there are very few who believe compared to a whole world of unbelievers. Now, this was certainly true in the time of Jesus. The vast majority of the Jews did not believe Christ's testimony, and that's still true today. Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jews, and, that, and, and his own did not receive him. But it's also true about the rest of the world. The vast majority of the people to this day do not believe in the testimony of Jesus. They don't believe what he says. They don't read. They don't understand. They don't believe it. Now, just because that's true of the world today and was true 2,000 years ago, it's, it's less true today than it was 2,000 years ago, percentage-wise. But that does not mean that this will always be true, that the majority, overwhelming majority, will not believe 
We have prophecies, verses in the Bible that tells a, tells a different story that we're still looking forward to. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk is looking to a, a day yet in our future that, that the glory of the Lord, those who believe, will fill the earth. We're still looking for a time when the mustard seed has made a tree large enough for all the nations to rest in. That was part of our reading this morning. Or we're looking for when the leaven of the kingdom of God has so filled the earth that the prophecy of Jeremiah will be fulfilled in Jeremiah 31, 34. He says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we're looking for a time when the, when the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, and we're looking for a time when everyone will know the Lord for the most part. Until that time, it does kind of look like no one or very few people are believing the testimony of Christ. But here's what John tells us. Those who are made alive by the Spirit, those who are saved, those are the people that receive his testimony. Now, how do we know if someone is born again? How do we know if they're saved? Well, one of the, one of the tests here is they receive the testimony of Christ. They believe Christ. Look at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So no one receives it except for the ones that do. They're the ones that set their seal. That's an interesting phrase there. They set their seal. They receive his testimony. They set their seal that God is true. In the ancient world, someone, if someone wanted to give their approval to a document, say they were drawing up a will or some other legal document, or even writing a letter, they would fix their seal to the bottom of the document. Or when they, when they sent a letter, they would fix their seal to the document, knowing that when you receive the document and the seal is unbroken, that it's been undisturbed and so it's exactly what the author intended because it was under a seal. In those days, people actually wore, many people had signet rings. They've been found by archaeologists from around those areas, from, from some very famous people, people that have, were even listed in scripture. They found their signet ring what they, where they would set their seal in wax or clay. So to set one's seal meant that the one who attached his seal to a document agrees with it and believes it to be true. So in this case, this is a, a way to say whoever receives his testimony sets his seal. That, what that means is the one who receives his testimony is the one who will give public affirmation, will affirm to everyone that he believes what Jesus said is true. That's what Christians do, right? We don't go around sowing seeds of doubt in people's mind about Jesus. Those who are saved and regenerate, we go around telling people that Jesus is true. What he said is true. And we are witnesses to, to that. So we set our seal to it. We publicly affirm that what Jesus says, what Jesus taught, is true. Again, Calvin said, Hence, too, we are reminded how acceptable and precious a sacrifice in the sight of God faith is. As nothing is more dear to him than his truth, so we cannot render to him more acceptable worship than we, when we acknowledge by our faith that he is true. For then we ascribe that honor which truly belongs to him. On the other hand, we cannot offer to him a greater insult than not to believe the gospel. For he cannot be deprived of his truth without taking away all his glory and majesty. 
his truth is in some sort closely linked with the gospel and it is his will that there it should be recognized so the gospel and the truth of god so when you when you believe the gospel that is believe god's word what god said when you believe that you glorify god when you disbelieve it's as if you're calling god a liar and it um, you cannot take away from god's glory but in your own heart it shows a heart of unbelief in verse 34 of john chapter 3 he says for he whom god has sent utters the words of god for he gives the spirit without measure again god is speaking to us through jesus and god sent jesus to other the words of god and notice that John says that he gives the Spirit, that is, he gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. Remember when John the Baptist baptized him, the Spirit of God descended? Well, it didn't ascend. The Spirit of God came upon him. And John is telling us here that when Jesus received the Spirit of God, he received it without measure. The rabbis used to say that the prophets received a certain measure of the Spirit from God. Moses had a certain measure of the Spirit. David, as he wrote the Psalms, as, as, uh, as he lived throughout his life as king, he had a certain measure of the Spirit. John the Baptist had a certain measure of the Spirit. But here we find that when Christ was given the Spirit, he was given the Spirit without measure. He was given the fullness of of the Spirit. So everything Jesus did and said was done under the power and in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus could do such amazing miracles without any effort. You remember one time the disciples were trying to cast out a demon and <laughs> they couldn't do it. And Jesus was like, you guys a little faith. He, he said to them, well, he, immediately he cast out the demon, right? But he said to them, well, this one doesn't come out with, without prayer and fasting. Well, Jesus, maybe for them, they had to work on it. They had to do prayer and fasting, and they had to get ready for it. Jesus just walked up and, and did it. Why? Because he had the full measure of the Spirit. When the storm came, they were out in the boat, and they were getting ready to capsize. Jesus just spoke without any effort. He just woke up and said, well, why are you guys so fearful? You know, be, be still. And it was calm. Without effort. He didn't have to muster up anything. He didn't have to try twice, right? He, he just did it. And he was able to do that by making the lame walk and the blind to see and all the miracles that he did. He did that because he had the Spirit of God without measure. Now in John 14, 7, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. So the Father sent the Son into the world and gave him the Spirit of truth without measure. Therefore, everything that Christ taught is true. And again, this is so unlike the teachers of the world, right? There are teachers that say true things. Even philosophers get things right from time to time. Uh, blind hog can find an acorn, you know, every once in a while. But it cannot be said of anyone in this world that everything they taught is true. It, it, it can't be said. And the fact that Jesus spoke the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit brings us back to this truthfulness of God's word. How is that? Well, Jesus is still speaking to us through his word because it is the Spirit of God that is speaking to us. The, the Spirit of God is the one who inspired the Scripture. We find this in several places. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, that would include the Old Testament, it would include the New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training 
in righteousness. It's everything that we need. It's the word of God. It is true. Second Peter 1.21. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is giving us the understanding of how the scripture was inspired. Even though Hosea or Isaiah or someone wrote down the scroll, or maybe their secretary wrote down the scroll, it was not, it's not really Isaiah or Hosea or any of the prophets or in the New Testament, the apostles or anyone else. It's not just them writing the words. It is the Holy Spirit writing through them, using their vocabulary, using their personality. But it is the Spirit of God speaking to us through them. That's the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And because of that, and because the spirit of truth inspired the Bible, then everything in Scripture is true. It is correct. It is right. Now, Jesus said in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. How does the Holy Spirit sanctify us in the truth? And then he says, your word is truth. We are sanctified. We are made like Christ. We are taken from who we were and made to who God wants us to be, to be more like Christ. And that sanctification happens through the truth of God's word. That's why we need to be listening to God's word, hearing it preached, reading the Bible, reading God's word, because that word sanctifies us, it changes us, it forms us more into the image of Christ. Now in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul acknowledged this truth about God's word. It's not man's word. It's not written by men, it's written by God. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. That's really the difference between Christians and non-Christians, right? Those who, are not, who do not believe do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. They believe it's the words of men, and therefore they don't need to pay attention to it. But we understand that the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, all that's written here is the Word of God. And it wasn't the Word of God back then. It was back then, but it is the Word of God to us today. God is still speaking to us through the pages of the, of the Bible. And every word is important. I know um, there are a lot of people that believe that only the red letters in the Bible are important. I think there was even a song <laughs> about the red letters, right? And a lot of people will focus on the red letters. And, and in fact, those who kind of hold to liberal theology, they like to focus on the red letters. You know, the, the, the Bibles that just have the, have the words of Jesus in red and the rest of it's in black. And they like to focus on the red letters because there are, there's a lot of things that Jesus is not quoted in saying. But there's a lot of things that Paul or another apostle said that the liberals don't like. And so they will say, well, what's only important is the red letters. And clearly, you know, Paul, he was a homophobe or he had some other issues. And so we only go by the teaching of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't say anything about it, then it must be okay. But that is taking the doctrine of inspiration and turning it upside down. Jesus... And the spirit of truth has inspired all the words, not just the red letters, but everything that is in the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, in light of that, we need to remember a couple of things. One is the apostles, in order to make the New Testament, they either had to come from an apostle or a close associate with an apostle, right? The apostles wrote the New Testament, and who were they taught by? They were taught by Christ. 
So the apostles' doctrine that we read in Scripture is Christ's doctrine because Christ was their teacher. Secondly, much of what they wrote were, like the first one, the very things they learned from Christ, they heard from Christ. And when they wrote their letters in the New Testament, again, they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. So again, we can be sure that every word in Scripture, everything is inspired by God, inspired by the Spirit of Truth, therefore it is true. So we've seen Christ is preeminent because of his origin. Christ is preeminent because of his testimony, and his testimony is true. But third, Christ is preeminent because of his resources. So look at there in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So you need to ask the question, is there anything that God has not given into Christ's hands? The answer is no. He has given all things into his hands. So not only is the Spirit given to Christ without measure, but God the Father has given all things into Christ's hands. This means that Jesus has all authority. Just like he said as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. So Jesus is the, the authority, the final authority. And he has the authority given by God to speak for heaven. And he has the authority to send the Spirit. Remember he said, it's good that I go away, because if I go away, I will send another comforter. I will send you a comforter like myself, the Spirit, who will be with you, and he says, will be in you. Christ sends the Spirit. He has the authority to do that. Now, many people refuse to believe the Bible or believe the gospel or believe Christianity is true because someone with authority told them that it wasn't true or sowed the seeds of doubt. I remember many of my professors in college. It didn't matter what subject they were talking about. It was world thought. We were talking about something completely different. But, but every class, it seemed like he would always try to make the point uh, that Christianity is not true, that Jesus is not unique, that he is not the Christ. And it just seemed like that week by week, he would just bash Christianity. And I saw some of my friends, one close friend of mine, I saw him begin to turn away from the faith because of what the professor said. Because he saw that professor as a man with great authority. But he's just a man. Just a man. We need to remember that college professors, scientists, nowadays if a guy in a white coat says it, it's got to be true. You know, that's the, that's the new priesthood, right? The guys in the white coat. Science. Well, we forget to say that science is not speaking. A man is speaking. And every man has his own biases, right? <laughs> and so... The college professors, the scientists, the politicians, they are not the highest authority. Scripture makes it very clear that all authority has been given to Christ. Everything has been put into his hands. And one day, if they don't do it now, one day, everyone, all of them, everyone will bow down to him and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus is the final authority. Doesn't matter what a professor says, all the seeds of doubt he tries to sow, doesn't matter what he says, it's Christ who is true and it's his authority that we come to hold our beliefs and views and opinions. It's based on Christ. Which brings us to that final verse here in chapter three Again, it's a summary, 
but it's one of the most important truths that every human being should understand. 36. You know, out of all the Gideon Bibles and all the hotel rooms, this is for everyone. Everyone can read this. Everybody in the world can read this. And it's interesting that they still do not believe, right? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Great summary of the whole, all of chapter 3, right? And this summary gives humanity two options. There's only two options. There's only two roads. The first is to believe in the Son in order to have eternal life. By trusting in Christ with childlike faith, a person is saved. And notice the present tense there again. The present tense is the one who believes in the Son has, right now, has eternal life. It doesn't start after we die. It starts now, the moment we believe. J.C. Ryle wrote, pardon, peace, and a complete title to heaven are an immediate possession. They are a believer's own from the very moment he puts faith in Christ. So if you believe in Christ, your eternal life has already begun. It's already started. The other option for humanity is to reject Christ. A lot of people, a lot of people around us every day we run into, we talk to, that's their choice. That's what they've decided. They reject Christ. And he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Notice that the word obey there is where we would expect the word believe, those who do not believe. You know? so, so whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, you would think that would mean believe. Um, it sounds like kind of a work if we don't obey, if we don't do what he says, if we don't believe. But, it, it, but we remember that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit call sinners to believe. That's the call to humanity. Believe, trust in Christ, believe the gospel. That is the call. So if someone does not believe in Christ, they are disobeying God. They are not walking in obedience to God's command. So they refuse to obey. They refuse to believe. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's God's will. And if people refuse to believe, they are turning away from the will of God. They are disobeying. And so the person who does not obey, does not believe the gospel, will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains on him. It doesn't come upon him. It remains on him. So when we believe the gospel, when we trust in Christ, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is removed from us. But when a person does not believe, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, remains on them. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe in me, you will die. You will face the judgment. You will face God's wrath forever. And so there's only two choices for humanity. There's not a third choice. You say, well, I just refuse to make a choice. No, that's a, that's a choice. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. So there are only two paths, the path to life and the path of death. Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, and I'll shorten this just a little bit. He said, see, I have set before you this day life and death. That's the choice of mankind, right? God has set before every person life 
and death. And Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. That's one of the interesting things about rejecting Christ that the world needs to understand, that when you reject Christ, it very well could be that you're rejecting Christ for your children and your children's children. Choose life so you and your descendants may live. Because the promises of God are not just to us, are they? They're to our children as well. Joshua issued a similar challenge when he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day. And that's the choice that we all have. William Barclay in his Daily Study Bible series says, It has been said that all life concentrates upon a man at the crossroads. Maybe that's, maybe that's you today, at the crossroads. Turn right, there's life. Turn left, there's death. And then Barclay says, once again, John returns to his favorite thought. What matters in a man's, is a man's reaction to Christ. If that reaction be love and longing, that man will know life. If it be indifference or hostility, that man will know death. It is not that God sends his wrath upon him. It is that he brings that wrath upon himself. I think that point has been made many times in John chapter 3. So here we come to the end of one of the greatest chapters in one of the great gospels of the Bible. And my prayer for all of us is that we are trusting in Christ. And if not, I would encourage you and maybe someone who is listening on our podcast that you would trust him now and believe in him and you will have everlasting life.